I'm Roger Baker, Executive Director of the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN, a global center of excellence for geopolitical intelligence and analysis. Learn how you can put geopolitics to work for your organization at RAINnetwork.com. Welcome to RAIN's Essential Geopolitics podcast. I'm Emma Kami, and I'm here today with one of RAIN's cyber analysts, Ali Pluchinsky, to discuss the direction of current Russian cyber operations uh, through the lens of hacktivism and influence operations specifically. Welcome to the podcast, Ali. Thank you, Emma. It's a pleasure to be here. So to start us off, uh, what have current cyber Russian threat activities looked like and have they crossed the threshold of disruptive activity? That's a great question, Emma. Um, so I think it's important, first of all, to delineate between when we discuss Ukraine as a war theater versus the rest of the global cyberspace, um, especially when we talk about the question of disruptive cyber activity. Um, and in the case of Ukraine, we've certainly seen extensive examples of disruptive Russian cyber activity. It has primarily manifested through data wiper malware, which is a form of malicious code that seeks to destroy databases and um, other hardware um, and software features or tools on targeted systems. Um, Russian threat actors have also deployed other disruptive forms of ransomware um, and other encryption-based um, attacks. But that is explicitly in the case of Ukraine. And when we talk about comparatively the rest of the West or the rest of the global cyberspace, Russia has been much more constrained in, in what it will do um, against these countries. Um, according to a lot of cyber experts, what, what we see instead is these activities that are either conducted under the form of cyber criminal activities or enterprises or hacktivist activity. Um, and this operating under this guise of non-state behavior enables Russia to still um, avoid some of the attribution that would have tangible effects. Um, for example, retaliation from Western countries if Russia were to go so far as to conduct a disruptive or destructive cyber attack on a Western country. And of course, Russia also has to be considered also has to consider the fact that um, NATO's Article 5 does include a cyber component. And of course, there's no precedent right now for what uh, crossing that red line would look like. But this is certainly a consideration that we've seen play out in Russia's risk calculus, wherein even though we've seen probes or intrusions into Western critical infrastructure, thus far we've seen no widespread deployment of any kind of malicious malware on these entities. How does hacktivism kind of fit into Russia's offensive cyber strategy specifically? Yeah, um, so hacktivism has been a longstanding term with sometimes nebulous definitions and inclusions as to what it means. And um, I think it's important to be clear that when we talk about Russia, there's likely some groups that are independent and operating at their own volition in support of Russia's activities. but. Per my response to your last question, there's also a strong consensus that Russia, R Russian state authorities and, and agencies are also likely um, funding and directing the activities of other purported hacktivist groups. And we've seen some 
reports by companies like Mandiant that have clearly demonstrated some overlap of activity and correspondence between some of these hacktivist groups. For example, one group called No Name, um, 05716, they all kind of have ridiculous names. Um, that there has been some some baseline evidence of of collusion and in terms of what these groups are able to do uh, for Russia, again, they're not so much disruptive in nature. These big headline names like Anonymous Sudan, which is not believed to have any correlation to the infamous hacktivist group Anonymous or the country Sudan. Rather, it's thought to be um, a subgroup within the hacktivist group Killnet, um, which is a group that acts in support of Russia and has targeted a number of Western entities with distributed denial of service attacks that typically render online websites or resources inaccessible for a period of time. Um, and for Russia, this this has offered the government, I think, a way to still conduct some degree of retaliatory and um, disruptive, if not tangibly disruptive, at least superficially disruptive activity against Western organizations to show the administration's displeasure for how the West has acted in support of Ukraine. Can you um, expand a little bit on how uh, Russian uh, kind of state-sponsored uh, attacks differ from um, attacks carried out by pro-Russian uh, groups, because oftentimes Russia will hire these groups to do work for them. So how do you kind of differentiate between the activities that Russia is doing themselves and pro-Russian groups? Yeah, yeah, that, that definitely gets into the weeds um, of all the gray areas that exist within discussions about cyber threat activity. I think it's important to note that when we talk about something like an advanced persistent threat group, an APT, this is explicitly a group that is funded and operating directly underneath a government, typically in either their intelligence or military agencies. So in the case of Russia, when we are talking about their advanced persistent threat actors, we're talking about groups that are typically either working for the SVB or the GRU. Um, and the most clear distinction between these groups and independent hacktivists or even cyber criminal groups are, of course, that APTs tend to be the most and, and are the most sophisticated threat groups in the world and demonstrate capabilities that capabilities and resources that you don't see in these independent groups. Um, to the latter part of your question about groups for hire, I mean, again, this is a common way in which governments like Russia or Iran or North Korea try and circumvent some aspect of attribution. It, it's often through either reusing tools found in cyber criminal ecosystems or otherwise hiring services of these groups so as to create a, a level of uh, an area of distance of separation um, between the Russian government and whatever actions they carry out. But again, you you would never see the same level of sophistication in these independent groups, e even with the group like Killnet, which there is some belief that maybe Russia may either be directing or funding, but again, there's no clear consensus on that. But even in that case study, you don't, while there's been some reports that Killnet's activities have become slightly more sophisticated um, and have shown and demonstrated increased capabilities, 
they're still not resulting in the same degree of damage that we see occur when advanced persistent threat groups get involved. Thank you. Um, yeah, sorry, the reason I asked was just in terms of attributing kind of responsibility to actions and what kind of we consider as like the West as an attack or not. I feel like kind of knowing the distinction between whether it's a, a state sponsored or kind of a group is useful. So going on to kind of my last question, um, where are Russian in information and influence operations headed? Um, so Russian information operations, which have historically been a key component of Russian and um, even Soviet state strategy, um, they continue to be as important as ever, I would say. Um, I think early in the war, there was some belief that Russian information operations would potentially suffer as a result of the shift in resources and, and focus into the Ukrainian war theater. And I forget who it was. I think it may have been the FBI director at the time, but he said, I, I'm pretty sure Russia can walk and chew gum, uh, suggesting that in no way should we believe that Russian information operations would have difficulty keeping up despite the war in Ukraine. And it's definitely been the case that Russian information and influence operations have remained pretty pronounced. I think um, one good case study that we were actually covering today were, were some remarks that have recently been made by, um, by Polish state officials stating that Russian and Belarusian propaganda and influence operations have increased in the country. And while these officials didn't provide any tangible evidence or, or tactical reporting, um, and so, you know, taking this with a grain of salt is important, Poland is preparing for parliamentary elections uh, on October 15th. And so this is demonstrating Russia's early interest in having a little bit more influence in some of these more important elections. I mean, of course, Ukraine has been a very pivotal country in moving humanitarian and military aid into Ukraine for its counteroffensive efforts. And so Russia has a very high political stake in trying to affect and influence the outcome of those parliamentary elections. Um, and I am not an expert on Polish um, politics, but I think, you know, seeing evidence that Russia is already preparing to try and meddle in elections that are much more sensitive to its interests is indicative that information operations will be pronounced not only in the Polish parliamentary elections, but also as the United States is preparing for its big national ele election next year, which already looks as though it will be uh, rife with mis and disinformation resulting from um, current political polarization. And um, also there's elections upcoming in Europe, including the European Commission, um, the European Parliament's elections. And so um, these early indications of Russia's activities only suggest further that Russia will be a very potent and active um, adversarial country in, in these upcoming elections, which of course will pose extensive risks to the West. Um, and hopefully, given the fact that many of these Western countries have had quite extensive time to prepare for the possibility of Russian disinformation, 
the advent of generative AI is also a big consideration now on how much not only Russia, but other adversarial countries like North Korea, Iran, and China may also be able to leverage these tools to really proliferate convincing content that attempts to either influence or manipulate its audiences. Of course, we're familiar with deep fakes, but any kind of generative artificial content can be proliferated at a much faster rate by utilizing these tools and, of course, can also overcome linguistic or social barriers that some information operations from countries like China have struggled with. And to speak more clearly, I mean, sometimes we've seen adversarial countries have a difficult time with either language barriers, and so you see a lot of typos or misspellings in the kind of um, misinformation or disinformation that they proliferate. And of course, that's less convincing to an audience. And so by using tools like um, AI chatbots, this linguistic hurdle will be overcome. And so I think we're going to see a big influx of that kind of fake content in the coming months and over the course of the next year. Right before we end, can you touch on maybe possible efforts that the U.S. and other Western countries are putting into place, knowing that disinformation is going to be a big threat to upcoming elections? Absolutely. I think the efforts that Sam Altman, who is the CEO of OpenAI, has made to lobby Congress to implement regulations on the nascent generative AI sector have been very promising. And the um, voluntary promises made by the top seven AI labs in the country. I forget all of them, but it was OpenAI, I believe Microsoft, Amazon, Anthropic, and a few others. And about a, a few months ago, they, they met with President Biden in the White House to, to make voluntary promises to uphold safeguards around the use of AI, which suggests, of course, that they'll really try and ramp up um, ways in which to prevent these tools from being misused by by adversarial countries or groups or individuals. Um, we just saw DEFCON happen last week during which there was a one of the first ever large-scale, actually the first ever large-scale red team hacking, um, um, red team hacking initiative, I suppose, that involved hackers, ethical hackers, who made it um, the the point of their mission to try and find as many ways to break down these AI systems so that uh, researchers really know where these faults are in these systems so that they can patch them up prior to even further um, profusion of these systems for commercial and state use. Um, I think there's still some concerns around current content moderation issues between some of these tech giants and the government. Um, there's been some indication that some companies have cut their content moderation teams amid um, just wide-scale layoffs in the tech industry. But I, I think overall, countries and the private sector are, and by countries I mean governments and the private sector, are much more cognizant of the excessive um, the excessive harm that disinformation can have, especially on democratic institutions and processes. And so I'm hopeful that over the course of this next year, we only see further evidence of state and 
private sector collaborators um, finding new initiatives to protect these institutions. Thanks, Allie. I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more about this as it continues to develop and as we get closer to elections here in the U.S. For more geopolitical and economic analyses like the like this, uh, you can subscribe to our geopolitical intelligence product, Rain Worldview. Our flagship risk intelligence products provide clients with access to the insights and analyses they need to make more informed decisions and drive better risk management outcomes. Sign up at rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E network.com. I'm Emma Kami. Thanks for listening.